1970s, New York graffiti rapping and breaking became the prime expression to the new young people subculture called hip-hop. Well, hi again, everybody. How are you doing today? Good to have you along on this edition of the podcast of the Acton Institute. We call it Radio Free Acton, and we're glad to have you along. My name is Mark Vandermoss. I'm your host on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. we got a good one lined up for you today. Our guest in just a couple of moments will be Marina Nemot. She is an author, a columnist, a advocate for human rights internationally, and a former political prisoner in Iran. She was born in Tehran. In 1965, about a decade and a half before the Islamic Revolution, so she grew up in a relatively, quote-unquote, liberal society. Of course, she grew up under the Shah, but as our friend Jay Nordlinger said a couple weeks ago on Radio Free Acton, when you're comparing dictators, uh, sometimes you got to grade on a curve. The Shah, a little bit, little bit more uh, lenient than the, the Ayatollah Khomeini, as it turns out, and uh, Marina found that out uh, after the revolution. She found herself in prison political prisoner in Evan Prison, a notorious facility on the outskirts of Tehran, where she was tortured, she was threatened with execution, and uh, thanks be to God, she was not executed. She found her way out of prison and uh, in 1991 found her way to Canada, where she has lived ever since. She's written a couple of memoirs, and we've got her today here on Radio Free Acton. She's got a great perspective, a person who's dealt firsthand with radical Islamism, and uh, who, who regularly deals with refugees as well. So she's got a good perspective to share with us, both on uh, the problem of Islamic terrorism and on the refugee crisis. Stick around for that interview. Before we get to that, though, I want to uh, mention one event that's coming up, uh, one remaining event on the calendar year 2015 here at the Acton Institute's Mark Murray Auditorium. Lawrence Reed is coming to town in an event that will be co-sponsored with our good friends at the Mackinac Institute for Public Policy. They're based in Midland, Michigan. And every once in a while, we get the pleasure of having our friends from Mackinac come down and we share our space and co-sponsor a lecture. And Lawrence Reed is going to be here uh, at the next one. It's going to be happening on December 10th, 2015. Uh, Doors open at 1130. And Larry Reed is going to be talking about his latest book, Excuse Me, Professor. Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. This is going to be a great one for college students or for parents of college students. Cost is $15 a regular price. If you're a college student or a full-time student, I should say, we'll drop that down to 10 bucks. And, of course, that includes lunch, and we'll have a book signing afterwards. Larry Reed always does a fantastic job when he comes down here for either Acton on Tap or the Acton Lecture Series. So make time uh, to join us on December 10th as we welcome Larry Reed to town in conjunction with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. You can find them online at Mackinac.org. That's M-A-C-K-I-N-A-C dot org. Well, I am pleased uh, and honored today to be joined in the Acton Studios by Marina Nemat. She is uh, a Canadian citizen these days, but was born and raised in Iran uh, and uh, uh, before the Islamic Revolution, in fact. And uh, Marina, first of all, uh, before I get too far into your biography, I want to say hello and welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is so great to have you here at the Acton Institute today. And you, of course, were uh, participating in the Acton Lecture Series, telling a little bit about your uh, your story and uh it is just a powerful and compelling story, and uh, there are so many different questions that I could ask. I hardly know where to start, so I'm going to start at the very beginning. Um, you were born in Iran, 
in uh, 1965, obviously prior to the Islamic Revolution. You were, you were raised under the uh, government of the Shah. And uh, it, one of the things that I, I note about myself, I was born about 10 years after you, and my entire experience of Iran, uh, at least my initial introduction to it, was in the 1980s. So, of course, the glowering figure of the Ayatollah Khomeini and death to America. And I've never really experienced an Iran that was different than that. What country did you grow up in? What was the, what was the Iran of your youth? The Iran of my youth was um, very westernized. Uh, we had a secular government, the government of the Shah. And even though we had no political freedoms, I mean, it's uh, no secret that the Shah was a dictator politically, but he gave the people of Iran a good amount of personal and religious freedom. So um, we, Iran was governed by secular laws back then before the revolution. So women could dress whatever way they wanted. They didn't have to wear the hijab. A woman could become a judge, could become a prime minister. Um, education was important uh, to the government. And uh, the the law looked looked at men and women quite equally. So that was the Iran I grew up in. And when I looked on my street, I saw a no, normal street with men and women doing their shopping. And the women, most of them would be wearing tight t-shirts and miniskirts. And, and we studied English in school. And I went to a good school. To a good school, I went to become a medical doctor. And we had a cottage. I wore bikinis on the beach. I danced to the tunes of the Bee Gees. I read a lot of English language books. It's such a contrast to what uh, what I would think of Iran from my youth when I was growing up, uh, th that it's it's really jarring. And to hear that your father was a ballroom dance instructor uh, and your mother was a hairdresser, these are things that I would never associate with a country like Iran now because, of course, dancing is likely forbidden. Yes. Uh, and uh, women probably don't have much opportunity to display any sort of a hairdo. No. And so it's it's very it's, – it's just very uh, – it seems out of place for you to have been able to have that youth, and yet you did. Yes, that is true. Now, now we have to understand that uh, the, the, to understand why uh, the Islamic Revolution happened and all the things that it did to the people of Iran. I mean, it's a two-hour lecture, so oh, yeah. I don't want to get into it. But it is important to remember that uh, before the Islamic Revolution, Iran was not governed by religious laws, and it was a very westernized society. What were the major changes that you felt uh, as a young person in Iran at from uh, going from a secular government of the Shah to the new revolutionary government of uh, of the Ayatollah the people of Iran had high hopes. When the revolution happened, the people of Iran didn't want to lose their personal and religious freedoms, uh, but they wanted to, on top of that, what they had to gain uh, actually political freedoms, which is what the Ayatollah had exactly promised. He promised the people of Iran that he wouldn't take anything from them, but that he would give us political freedoms, that we would have freedom and democracy, um, endlessly. And that, of course, is not what happened. And when the new government came into power, it scrapped the old laws, which was expected. But then it wrote a new set of laws based on Sharia law, which is basically religious law. And within these laws, um, men uh, are twice as important as women, like literally. A woman's testimony, for example, is worth half of a man's. And uh, adultery is punished by stoning. And, you know, I, I can go on and on. But basically... Um, 
we lost all of our personal freedoms. Dancing became illegal, singing became illegal, holding your boyfriend's hand in public became illegal. And it happened relatively quickly. I mean, it took about a year. And then these new rules and regulations on how to dress. I mean, suddenly the government was literally in your bedroom and in your bathroom and, you know, in the most private sections of your life, trying to tell you exactly what to do and what not to do. It's an amazing, uh, it's it's an amazing thing to think about it. A horrible thing to think about for a person who was raised and, and has always experienced the relative liberty of the, of the United States of America or a Western nation. Uh, you, of course, ran afoul of the new Islamic revolutionary government. You ended up uh, as a political prisoner, essentially, in Evan Prison, which is a, a, a very uh, notorious place. I knew of it well before I ever heard of you. So obviously that means that it's got a reputation. Um, it sits there at the foot of the mountains right on the edge of town, if I if I uh, understand correctly. And it's uh, it's has a long reputation as a home for torture and uh, brutality, even from the Shah to, to now. And you talked about this today in your lecture that uh, really nothing has changed there from uh, from – well, from since the shot, it's still in operation. It's still the same place. The same stuff still happens there. Yes, that's right. Uh, Evin Prison was supposed to turn into a museum with the success of the revolution. It didn't. It became bigger and stronger. Evin Prison today is much bigger. They have actually added to it. So it's much bigger and it holds a larger number of prisoners. And still, most of them are political prisoners. We uh, we spend a lot of time these days talking about Iran, uh, obviously with the uh, nuclear deal that has been negotiated. Uh, that is, uh, I, I think, of some questionable value at the very best. Um, is Iran a different country? Is Iran uh, has Iran changed since the revolution? Uh, are we right to to negotiate with them and to and to try to establish more close relations with Iran? Listen, I have nothing against negotiation in general. I am one of those people who believes in talking to my enemies. So my worst enemy, the people that tortured me, the people who devastated my life, I am not against talking to them. But how do we talk to them is what matters. So basically, Iran, as you can read it, don't take it from me, look at its history. It now has 30-something years history since the success of the revolution in 79, so 36 years. It has a horrific history of terrible disregard for human rights, of murder, of um, senseless executions, of torture, of... Um, various kinds of persecution against religious minorities, against, against ethnic minorities. And when the, this new government, the government of Mr. Rouhani came into power about two years ago, uh, a lot of Westerners were happy. And so were a lot of Iranians, actually, who thought that because he's a so-called reformist, things are going to get better. I mean, of course, Rouhani uh, talked a lot about giving more, more freedoms. And he's definitely much more mild manners, mannered, at least, you know, in the way he presents himself. As compared to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Yes, was just basically, was just saying, let's just wipe everybody else off the planet. And Rouhani doesn't go about it like that. Rouhani is a true politician. He knows how to play with words. He knows how to sugarcoat things. So, um, but but let's look at what he has really done. In the past two years, the number of executions in Iran has increased. So right now, Iran is executing an average of three to four people a day. 
And that is the highest number ever. And no laws have changed in Iran. Iran is still has a Sharia-based law, and still the testimony of a woman is worth half of a man. There are no extra freedoms. Journalists are still getting arrested. Still, they are being just recently a filmmaker was given like an eight-year sentence and um, many lashes. So nothing has changed in our practicality. So the U.S. and the West basically want to release $150 billion into the hands of a killing machine, and they expect a good outcome. I'm not saying don't negotiate with them, but if you're going to negotiate with a government like Iran, get something in return. You have to make demands, and not just in the nuclear realm, but what really affects the people of Iran, the region. I mean, Iran has a hand in Syria. The why Syria is in such a mess and hundreds of thousands of innocents have died. Iran is at fault in Syria as well. So we need to negotiate. Yes, sure. But we need to put all of these human rights related issues on the table and not just to give everything away for free. I wonder, Iran, having been a largely secular country before the Islamic Revolution, there there probably are still a lot of people there who remember that. Uh, Of course, you're you're not very old at all, and you remember it. Um, it, it there, there must still be a population that, that looks back fondly on those days. It, what sort of support does the government have from the people? Are average people behind the government in some way, or is there a large percentage of the, the people of Iran who would prefer to see a, a new revolution, uh, a new type of governance? It's complicated. Let me let me put it that way. The vast majority of the people of Iran, I cannot give you a number because I cannot go walk the streets, uh, the streets of Tehran and take a census. Nobody can because people in Iran cannot speak freely. So you cannot actually give a head count on how many people support the government really and how people how many people don't. People are afraid of going to prison. So of course they would say this they support the government, but the reality is different. I know many of my friends who live in Iran, they do not at all support the government. But do so let's say the majority of people, anywhere from between I would say sixty percent to eighty percent, they do not support the government for various reasons at various levels. But do those people want a revolution? No, they do not. And the reason is what is happening in all the countries bordering basically on Iran on the east and west. I mean, Syria is burning in civil war. Iraq is basically the same thing. Afghanistan is not doing that great. And Pakistan is a very difficult place, to put it mildly. So at the end of the day, the average Iranian, and actually I have talked to my friends who live in Iran, some of them were in prison with me. They would say, Marina, we don't want this government. You know we don't because we went to prison protesting it. But if we go on the streets, we, they tried it in 2009 and it didn't work. But if we really go onto the streets and we begin to scream and shout against the government, first of all, they will kill us all and they will put the rest in the prison. But let's even say that we get 50 million people on the streets. They cannot kill everybody. But at the end of the day, what is going to happen in Iran? Because Iran is an ethnically, religiously divided country. It is a horrendously divided country. We are going to have civil war. So are you asking for what happened in Syria to happen in Iran? And I have to say no to that as well. So there is a will to have change of government. But first of all, we don't have a leader. They killed everybody and they exiled the rest. Uh, And the second thing is that what if that is done and uh, Iran breaks into civil war? Uh, Nobody really wants that. Is there is there 
any real hope for for change in Iran? Is there what would it take for Iran to peacefully change? Is there even a possibility of that? Of course, there is a possibility. Don't forget what happened to the Soviet Union. I'm not saying Russia is democracy. No, far from it. I mean, Putin, I think, is a very, very dangerous thing for his own people and for the world. I would never say that. But at the same time, the Soviet Union, the communist system that had been in power for decades, it collapsed. And nobody saw it coming. And you have all these analysts, all, all these Harvard education people, educated people who didn't see it come. So... I believe there is hope because history never stays stagnant. In history, everything changes. The question is not so much whether the Islamic Republic will end. It will end sooner or later, like everything else. The question is what is what will take its place. That yes. is what worries me. Yes, I, uh, in, in the way you've put it here, I can understand why. I mean, uh, the, the Middle East right now is a huge... A huge conflagration, and uh, and that leads me to one more question for you. And it it's the issue of the day, really, right now, is the refugee crisis, both in Europe and the question of uh, how many uh, refugees the United States will accept, and whether the United States will accept them immediately, or if there's going to be a pause uh, in, in that process. Let let me frame the question this way: uh, We are we we've seen in the past few years the rise of ISIS, of course, the Islamic State. Um, and ISIS needs no one to vouch for their brutality. They have demonstrated it uh, again and again on television, on videotape. They are not afraid to show just how brutal they can be. ISIS has said repeatedly uh, that they are planning uh, to use the refugee crisis to essentially smuggle their soldiers into Western nations. Uh, and that's uh, obviously I think that would be a concerning thing for people to hear. Uh, and yet there are so many people who are in desperate need right now of safe uh, – just, just a safe harbor, a place that they can literally just live and escape the, the horror that really is engulfing their, their uh, homeland. How, how would you talk to uh, an, uh, just an average American citizen who on the one hand really would love to help but on the other hand has these concerns about what – what may happen through this refugee process? There's a lot of people who are, who are concerned. And, and how do you address that? Listen, this is a rather strange situation. I work with refugees. So I, we have already sponsored families and brought them to Canada, refugees, and helped them integrate. Some of them have been Christians. Some of them have been Muslims. And our experiences have been amazing. So I do this on a daily basis. Now, I was tortured by Islamists. The men who beat me to a pulp, they did it in the name of Allah, in the name of their God. When they were beating me at the age of 16, they yelled, Allahu Akbar. They would stop beating me when it was time for the daily prayer, let's say the midday prayer or the evening prayer. They would stop beating me. They would go and do their prayers and then they would come back and continue beating me. They tried in Evin prison to make me a hateful, angry individual. With their torture, with their intimidation, they tried to make me one of them. And when I say one of them, I don't mean necessarily a Muslim. I mean a hateful individual. Mm. Hateful people are everywhere. We have Christians who are hateful. We have Jewish people who are hateful. We have atheists who are hateful. 
any in any ethnicity, in any country, in any situation, there are people who are sociopaths. There are people who are downright criminals. There are people who are rapists. So let's say in Canada, I sometimes watch news coming from the United States of sociopaths opening fire on people in schools, in movie theaters. And a lot of these people are multi-generation Americans. So as a Canadian, as a result, do I say, okay, no Americans are allowed to enter Canada now, people. We don't like Americans. They're murderers. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, that is reason for concern, right? So to paint with a broad brush is basically giving in to terrorists. Terrorists cannot kill everybody. What terrorists are trying to do, including ISIS, including Al-Qaeda, is to create fear and through fear to create hatred and through hatred to divide and through division to conquer. So if we do not give them what they thrive on, which is hatred and division, they will lose. Will there be some a, a small number of terrorists amongst refugees? Of course there will be. But there are a lot of terrorists out there who are members of ISIS, who have a lot of money and who can fly to the United States of America or anywhere in the world they want on first-class tickets. So do they really need to hide, hide behind the refugees and get on rickety boats to get to the United States? Are you kidding me? No, they will fly first class. And they have, you know, I mean, we have all watched spy movies. You know, they, they have fake passports and fake identities. And you know what? Do we really pre think that by not allowing refugees in our countries, we are going to stop terrorists from attacking us? No. But what we are going to do is we are going to create more hatred, more division, more hate and more anger. And a lot of these youth who are right now stranded in Middle with nowhere to go, they're going to be future recruits for ISIS. That's the bottom line for ISIS. They just want more recruits. The more anger and hatred there is, the more recruits they're going to get. I think that's a perspective that's that's very fresh and and it's needed right now in a lot of places in the world and especially in the United States. There's just uh, there is a lot of anxiety in the world in general, and it's good to uh, to have you here. It's good to know that you have come through the experiences that you've come through, and you can use those, turn them to good, and be a voice of calm and compassion in a world that desperately needs it. Marina Nemet, I really appreciate your being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, we bring another edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. And I want to offer my thanks once again to Marina Nemat for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, she has an amazing story to tell, and I'm glad that we can be a part of spreading her story around. Uh, I'm very thankful for her perspective as well on, on the issues that we face in the world today of Islamic terrorism. Uh, Islamic radicalism, I should say, and uh, and also the refugee crisis. There's a lot of concern, a lot of tension in the world, and it's good to have a person with Marina's perspective to sort of leaven our thinking on those issues. So thanks again to Marina Nemat. Uh, check her out online as well, marinanemat.com, M-A-R-I-N-A-N-E-M-A-T.com. It's Thanksgiving week in the United States, uh, and we have a lot to be thankful for here at the Acton Institute. Uh, here at Radio Free Acton, we're thankful for everyone who joins us on a regular basis to listen to the podcast. And uh, we wish you well as we head into the holiday season, the upcoming Christmas season. If you know of anybody who you think would uh, be interested in hearing Radio Free Acton or reading the Acton Power blog, please do send around uh, the links, uh, blog.acton.org. 
is the home of the Acton Power blog, and uh, Radio Free Acton is posted there first. So check it out uh, on a daily basis for news information and commentary uh, from the Acton Institute. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to be back uh, again with more editions before the end of the year. But for now, we're going to sign off on this edition of Radio Free Acton. My name's Mark Vandermoss. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Have a great day, everybody.